Well, hey there. This is Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. And for this latest season of Crime Beat Chronicles that you're listening to, we wanted to highlight a series from the Roanoke Times titled Septic that was first reported and produced in 2018 by journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. A five-year-old child went missing in Dublin, Virginia, the spring of 2015. When his body was discovered days later in the family's septic tank, the mother was put on trial both by the court system as well as social media, where misinformation, accusations, and vengeance-fueled comments spread unchecked. It's a tragic story, to be sure, but reporters Demet and Korth went to tremendous lengths to capture and present a well-rounded and ultimately humane narrative that explores the way a community failed one of their own while also touching on broader implications like the effects of Facebook, the stigma of drug addiction in rural America, and the distortion of facts. This is the fifth of what will ultimately be seven episodes releasing every week. So firstly, head back to the start of the series if it's your first time here. And secondly, make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed, you can explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We'll make sure to include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes, so make sure you check those out for even more context and reporting on the story. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. It's the work of local reporters that make shows like this and so many others that you likely enjoy possible. So thanks for listening. And here's the fifth episode, A Bad Idea, which was produced in 2018 by Roanoke Times journalists, Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. My mom visited in the newsroom a while back, so I used the opportunity to ask her about the Noah Thomas case. I wanted to know, when I was a baby, did she ever take a nap and leave me and my brother and sister unattended? Her first reaction was to say, no, she would never do that. It's dangerous. But then she started to remember little incidents. So, All right. there was another time. <laughs> <laughs> now that I think of it, <laughs> there was another very unfortunate situation that could have ended very badly. Uh-huh. And this was with Andrew, my first, when I was mopping floors. And I, he was probably only 18 months old. Mm, I've never heard this one. Yeah, I think you have. Yeah. But I was mopping the floors, and I said, I put him outside and said, I'll be out in just a minute. I'm going to mop myself to the door, dump the water, and then I'll go out and play with him. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I finished the last few sections of the floor, backed myself out the door, and went to go dump the bucket, and Andrew was gone. He was out of the yard. Mm-hmm. And I started yelling for him, Andrew, Andrew, no answer. Well, this is an 18-month-old. I mean, how fast can an 18-month-old walk? Well, about two hours later, and by this time I had called neighbors to come help me look, the fire department, <laughs> the farmers that were all around oh, wow. us because it, it, we were surrounded by cornfields. Mm-hmm. He had followed the dog into the cornfield, and, mm-hmm. and we did not find him for almost two hours. 
eventually he came out of the cornfield with the dog. Yeah. He had followed our dog into the cornfield. He and, followed it out. And he followed me. Yeah. I like to say that Sheba led him out of the cornfield. Do you, do you think you would have been arrested if he hadn't, if, if something else had happened to him that day? Well, I don't know. What would the crime have been? Negligence? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the crime? I, um, you know, no, I, I guess not because it's not like I left him for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. I think, again, it's a one of those situations where things just happen that you can't even anticipate or you can't prepare for or plan for. From the Roanoke Times Newsroom, this is Septic. I'm Jacob Demet, reporting with Robbie Korth. What strikes me about that story is how similar my mom's defense of her actions that day is to Ashley the morning Noah died. She didn't leave my brother unattended for more than just a few minutes. He was just 18 months old, so how much trouble could he get into? Being a parent is difficult, and it's just one of those things that happens. I had a similar conversation with my mom. She said she would never intentionally leave my brother and me alone to take a nap, but she could think of at least one time she accidentally fell asleep while we watched a movie together. Things do happen sometimes. Ask your mom, and I bet she'll tell you the same. But what if we weren't talking about my mom here? What if instead of a middle-class family on a farm in Indiana, a child is left unattended in a trailer in rural southwest Virginia? What if that mother has a history of drug addiction? What if, while she slept, the unthinkable happened? Does this mother get the same sympathy that you felt for mine? We ask that you keep these questions in mind as you listen to day two of Ashley White's trial. That's the day she finally broke her silence and took the stand. You're about to hear a lot of testimony. As with all our courtroom recordings, none of this has been heard before outside the courthouse. Cameras were not allowed in the room, and Ashley never granted a media interview. So what you're about to hear is the only time she publicly told her side of the story. The first voice you'll hear is Ashley's defense attorney, Kelsey Bolger. Later, Prosecutor Mike Fleener asks his questions. Your Honor, we would call Ms. White. All right. Please have a seat. Please answer the questions of the attorneys, beginning with Ms. Bolger. Ms. White, could you please state your name for the record? Ashley Jennifer White. How old are you? 31. Court is usually pretty boring. We took out a lot of dead air and some innocuous questions, but the meaning of everything presented is still intact. Some of it is still slow and a little repetitive, but we want to give Ashley her chance to explain what happened on the morning of March 22, 2015. Would you agree that the trailer was pretty messy? Yes, it was a disaster at the time. It was. was did it always look like that? No, it did not. It did not always look like that. I had been, I'd just gone back to work. Abby was tiny, and between trying to take care of Abby, working, getting Noah back and forth to school and basketball practice, and then cooking dinner, doing homework, and bath time, there wasn't a lot of time left in the day to do a lot of cleaning, so maybe I didn't dust enough or, you know, like, it was. It was a mess. Okay. You also heard the evidence about the strong smell of smoke 
when the FBI agents searched your home, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Did you smoke in your house? Yes, I smoked in the back bedroom by a window with a fan facing out because but of Abby. You also heard about the cigarette packs found throughout your house, mm -hmm. right? Why were those all over the house? They were all over because nobody, there was no kids there. They weren't normally all over. They would have been either in the back bedroom or in my purse. Everything was kind of in disarray because once everything started, nothing else was important. Would you say that March 22nd was a pretty stressful day for you? Yes. Okay. Did you smoke more on March 22nd than you usually do? Back to back. Okay. So you basically never stopped smoking no. that day? Okay. Did not the entire time he was missing. Was Abby in the house that day with you on March 22nd? She was at the beginning of the day. I didn't want her, babies can feel your stress. And I was freaking out. I didn't want her to feel what I was feeling. So I got my aunt to take her to her house. Okay. Okay. And how long had you been taking Suboxone? A year and a half. Okay. Um, did you take it every day? Yes, ma'am. Okay. When did you take it? When I got up for the day, like when I was, you know, everything started. Like if I was going to be asleep, I didn't take it. So when you, what do you mean when you say if you were going to be asleep? Like we got up really early to take Paul to work, always. So whenever I was off and I was going to be at home, when we'd go back home, depending on what Abby was doing, if she was awake, we would all hang out in the living room on the couch together and we would watch cartoons. We called it snugging up. That's what Noah liked to call it. So we would all snug up on the couch together and watch television, and usually we would all three fall back asleep. If Abby was already asleep when we got back, then I would put her in her room, and Noah and I would go to the back bedroom so that we didn't disturb Abby. So if she was asleep and he was awake and I was awake, we would go back there and snug up in the bed together. Okay, so the morning of March 22nd, when did you take the Suboxone? After I had already called the police when everything started. Like, I had already called 911 and was sitting there waiting for them to arrive, and I took my medicine before they came. And why don't you take Suboxone before you were going to take a nap or you were going to be asleep or something like that? Because you don't need it if you're not awake. Okay. Um, now, you also heard the testimony about from Dr. Wright about Suboxone helping to wean someone off opiates. Do you consider yourself a drug addict? I had a problem. I voluntarily put myself into treatment. I knew that I had a problem. I took my treatment very seriously, and to be called a drug addict because I was in treatment isn't a very fair statement. I willingly took drug tests every week. I willingly was going to counseling. I willingly was participating in a program to make myself better for my children. So I want to take you back to the morning of March 22nd. What time did everyone wake up? Every morning, everything was usually the same. So every morning, Paul, when he had to go to work, he would wake up first. And then he would get Noah up, and he would also get Abby up, and usually he would feed Abby, like the second he got her up. Was he feeding Abby the morning of March 22nd? No, Abby was sick, 
and she wasn't even awake. She didn't feel good. She wasn't hungry. He had, I think he was like going to try to feed her, and she wasn't interested. So he just let her sleep. Okay. And did you have to work on March 22nd? I was actually supposed to work that day, but where Abby had been sick, and she had to, I was giving her breathing treatments. She didn't have to have them. It was my choice to give them to her. Where I was giving her breathing treatments, I didn't want to send her to my mom's and have my mom have to take care of her. I wanted to be the one that took care of her. It was the first time she'd ever been sick. So I called in the day before and told my boss that I wouldn't be in the next day. Okay. So on March 22nd, was Noah awake when you got out of bed? He was laying on the couch with Abby. Every morning when I would come out, Noah would be, he loved Abby so much, he would be snuggled up with her on the couch, and he was, he always called her his little cutie. He'd be like, good morning, little cutie. And he would be laying on the couch with her, so that's where he was. He was laying right beside her, and he looked like he wanted to go back to sleep, like he wasn't even moving, he, he was sleepy. I don't think he slept good the night before, I'm not sure, but. I don't think he did because he wasn't very awake. Ms. White, I am showing you Defense Exhibit 5 and Defense Exhibit 6. <laughs> do you recognize these pictures? Yes, I do. What are they? They're a picture I took of Abby while Noah was holding her. He was holding her. He loved her so much. She was the best big brother. Like, even before she was born, he loved her. He would come up when my stomach was huge, and he would put his hand on it, and he'd shake my tummy, and he'd say, I'm shaking your house. He loved her so much. So that morning, when did you first consider leaving them home? <laughs> when I saw them laying on the couch the way they were. Abby's all crusty nose, and she's asleep, and she didn't feel good, and I didn't want to drag her out. And I know that it was a stupid idea. Looking back, I can't, I have no justification for that. It was a dumb idea. But at the time, I was thinking of it like the length of a shower, and I would leave them alone for the length of a shower. I didn't, it was not a good idea, and I know that. Did you think that they were going to be in any kind of danger? No. How long did it usually take you to to take Paul to work? It was like 10 or 11 minutes on the way there, 10 or 11 minutes on the way back. Okay. Um, why couldn't Paul just drive himself to work? We only had one car, so and he didn't have a license either. Okay, so you drove him everywhere. Everywhere, okay. When you left to take Paul to work, did you leave Abby on the couch? No. I put Abby in her swing and strapped her in so that she would be safe. I didn't want her, you know, somewhere that she could, like, roll off. I wouldn't want to leave her on a couch. And then I told Noah, no matter what happened, not to bother her, not even if she was crying, just leave her, and I would be right back. Okay. Had he ever been aggressive towards Abby before? No, he loved her. He loved her more than anything. Okay, so when you told him not to bother her, what did you mean? I meant, like, don't go and open the door. Because when Abby was asleep, Noah, he, and I don't know why he would do it, drove me nuts. He'd just open her door for no reason so he could look at her. He didn't even touch her. Like, that's not, he. it wasn't, like, to bother her or move her or anything like that. It was just to look at her.
Did you lock the door behind you when you left? Noah locked it behind me. Okay. Did he lock both doors? Yes, he locked the screen door and then he locked the front door. Okay. And what kind of lock was on the front door? It was just a turn lock. Okay. And what happened when you got home? When I got home, I went to the door. Noah unlocked it. He had to unlock it from the inside because you can't unlock the screen door from the outside. So he unlocked it and let me in. Abby was still asleep. I looked at her. She was fine. And then me and Noah were going to go snug up in the bed together because Abby was asleep. And so you heard testimonies that you had made a statement about saying, buddy, we're home. Yes. I said that every morning. That was, we took Paul to work every morning. I know that what I said didn't happen that morning, but what I said was actually actual events from every other time we ever took Paul to work. It wasn't like I just fabricated the whole, like, I mean, I know that doesn't matter because it was a lie, but it wasn't like I made it up a lie. So you always said to Noah, buddy, we're, we're home. Yeah, because usually we, he would fall asleep on the way back. Okay. So when we'd pull in, he'd be asleep. Okay. So, but this morning, he let you inside the door and you went back to your room. Yeah, we both went back to my room. Okay, so what happened when you went back to your room? I put on um, some stupid show that he didn't want to watch. If I just would have watched something he wanted, he would have stayed back there with me. So did he say that he, he didn't want to, to watch Yeah, he that? said he wanted to watch cartoons. Okay. And did you let him go watch cartoons? Yes. And what eventually woke you up? Abby. Okay. She was crying on the baby monitor. That's what I was waiting for anyway. Okay. And you woke right up when Abby started crying? Yeah. Okay. So what did you see when you walked outside of your bedroom? When I went to the living room, the front door was open, like the inside door, and the screen door was closed. And the TV was on cartoons, but it was on, like, too loud Okay. to be in. It wasn't, like, blasting or anything. He just wasn't. We didn't usually keep it that loud. Okay. What were you thinking when you saw that door open? That Noah was going to be grounded for the whole day. Okay. Is that so something that Noah had gotten in trouble for before? No, but you can't go outside and play by yourself without anybody watching you. And he knew that. Okay. And there was an earlier statement where you said, and I believe you were present for this, I don't go out back. That right? Yeah. Why don't you go out back? I don't go outside. I have lupus. So the sun is really bad for me. It's bad for the medicine I'm on. It's bad for the disease I have. And if I'm outside for any kind of, I get sunburnt in the car. Okay. So how did you usually watch Noah when he was outside? There was windows all over. You know how trailers are with windows. There's windows on each side. And then there's the front door. And there wasn't anything blocking Everywhere that he was allowed to play, you could see from either window or the door. Okay. Always. So you said that Noah had never gotten in trouble for this before. Did Noah ever get in trouble at home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did he usually get in trouble for? He has my, my mouth, so he's a smart mouth sometimes. So, like, if you told him not to do something, sometimes he would, like, roll his eyes and he'd say, here we go. Or, like, if he just, 
he was five. I mean, he got in trouble for little silly things like five-year-olds do. Okay. What about at school? Was he ever in trouble for running off? No. Okay. Did he ever get in trouble at school? He did get in trouble at school, but it was because he was a really social little boy. He really liked people, and he liked to talk. So in the middle of class, he was always interrupting the teacher. And so when he got home, we would they have like a sticker chart, and you either get a sticker for the day if you're good, or you get numbers that have like corresponding things that they had done wrong. So he would always get numbers for talking or interrupting. And then he would be in trouble that day, and he would lose, like, one privilege. And if it was two days in a row, he would lose more privileges. Or we'd take his trophy away. He had a trophy that he really liked he hadn't had for very long. And we took it away from him when he was in trouble at school. Miss White, what was the trophy for? Basketball. Was he on a basketball team? Yes. Did you take him to all of his practices and Yes. It's like, I'm now showing you defense exhibit six. <laughs> Get them out. You haven't seen that picture. Do you recognize the picture? Yeah, I took it. Do you know what that's from? It was the dinner that they had when they handed out the trophies. And were you there for that dinner? Yeah. Right. And what's in front of him? His trophy. He loved that trophy. Yeah, I would move to enter Defense Exhibit 6. Any objection? He was so Defense proud exhibit, of it. Just one moment. Defense Exhibit 6 is admitted without objection. Ms. White, about how long after you saw that the door open did you call 911? I looked for Noah for probably like 15 minutes. Because I thought for sure that he was just, you know, outside somewhere. I was hoping maybe, like, Mr. Meadows was with him or that he had started playing with the neighbor kid. And so I wanted to look everywhere. Okay. And after you called 911, did did a deputy arrive? Yes. Okay. Um, did you tell that deputy that you had left the children home alone? No, I didn't because I wanted them looking for Noah. I didn't know where he was. And if I said that, all it was going to do was make them look at me. And I didn't know where he was. I just wanted them to find him. Did you tell every officer, every person you talked to that day that you brought the children with you? Yes. I told everyone. I knew that they were going to find out. I knew that they would eventually know that that was not true. But it didn't matter to me. If they thought I was a liar, the only thing that mattered to me was them finding Noah. And Miss White, you did eventually, did you eventually tell the truth about that morning? Yes, the next day. Okay. Um, and after you told the investigators the truth about that, what happened with Abby? The lady from social services came to the sheriff's department and she made a sign of things saying that we weren't allowed to go anywhere near Abby. Were you able to visit Abby at all after that? I, I wasn't allowed to visit Abby, so I had to set it up with them to be able to see her. So I'd have to call Opal, and then she would, like, I tried a few times. I only got to see her once, but it was, 
it was really hard having to sit there with her and have them sitting in the room watching me like I'm some sort of freak with my daughter and my son is gone. I want to talk a little bit about the, the septic tank itself with you. Um, did you tell Noah anything about the septic tank? I'd seen him standing on the lid at one point, and I did. I told him he wasn't allowed to stand on it. I thought he would crack it. I never thought. Did, did you think that the lid would just come off like that? No. Had you ever tried to open the lid? No. So when you were told he was found in the septic tank, how, how did you think he got in there? I didn't know. They told me somebody poisoned him and put him there. I, I didn't know. How long did you think? Months. They arrested me five minutes after they told me that, and I sat in jail thinking that for months. Miss White, those are all the questions I have for you. You could answer any questions from Mr. Kidman. At one point, you told uh, Opal Squires that he was responsible. Yeah, I meant that he didn't, like, he he liked to do stuff for himself. You know what I mean? Like, like he would dress himself, or, or he would get, like, his own snack. I... I know that you thought I meant that I was saying he was responsible enough to take care of Abby. That's not what I meant by that statement. But he was. But he would get. He could get his own food. He could feed himself. Yes. That right? So he was responsible. He'd like get he his did. own cereal. Didn't you say during one of the yes. interviews that he could make his own cereal? He could. He could cook. Get corn things dog. out of the out of the kitchen. Did you keep the cereal in the kitchen? Yes. It was left on the table so he could reach it. Okay. Okay. Everything that he liked to eat, we left where he could reach it. Now, um, as you know, there were a number of photographs that the court accepted that were introduced by the Commonwealth showing the interior of your home. I think there were, there were uh, you know, close to 30 photographs. Um, you said, though, that the home was actually clean and, and gave the impression that it looked very different before that. Is that correct? Yeah, the house was not always messy. That those pictures okay. are not an accurate depiction of how my home was at all times. Okay. Well, when did it become that way? Um, it was really, it had been probably over the last three months trying to work and trying to get everybody back and forth from where they needed to be okay. and baths and dinner. By the, by the time all of that is done, who cares if there's a cobweb? I mean, I didn't. Okay, so... So Fleener is about to go over a trove of evidence photos with Ashley. It's pretty hard to understand what's going on without looking at these pictures, but they show her house in the aftermath of Noah's disappearance. There are cigarettes and cigarette boxes strewn about. There's a medicine cabinet full of various drugs, empty bleach bottles in the bathroom. One image showed nine half-full Mountain Dew cans on a dresser. Go to Roanoke.com to see all these photos, but you can also take our word for it. The trailer was a mess. Fleener focused on some photos of a closet in Abigail's bedroom. It showed what experts testified to be an old marijuana growing operation. Ashley admitted that Paul had grown marijuana in the closet, and she occasionally helped out, but that was long before Abigail was born. She said it had been about two years, and police testified there were no live plants in the closet, just a bunch of dried-out remains. 
Fleener also asked about the way Noah would play in the backyard. Ashley testified she had lupus, so she didn't go outside with Noah often, but instead watched him through a window. He then started asking about a basketball goal in Cement's lab outside the trailer that Ashley said Noah liked to play on. Do you agree uh, with some of the previous testimony, I believe from Mr. Meadows, that he tended to play a lot by himself? He would play with the neighbor kids if they were out, but yes, he played all the time. Okay. And did he play uh, quite a bit by himself, basketball behind the house there? Yes. Okay. All right. Do you know approximately how far the septic tank uh, lid and covering is from the concrete slab? No, I'm not sure. I never measured. Okay. Okay. Um, it's relatively close, though, isn't it? Within 15 feet? I'm really not sure. Okay. Now, he, there was at least one occasion, and I know you've testified that you don't go outside, and, 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 you, t and you told the investigators previously that you don't go outside, but there was at least one time that you saw him standing on the lid. Is that right? Yes. We, I was out back playing basketball with him. You were actually playing with him in the back. Okay. And um, you recognized that it was dangerous for him to stand on that lid. Is that right? I thought he would break the lid. I never for one second thought. Well, ma'am, um, I think even as Detective Wade asked you during the interview, was there some red flag that kind of went up when you saw him on that septic tank? Not the way you would think, no. I wish there would have been. I wish I would have walked over there that day and touched it or known that it moved. Okay. But you did... The way you described it to uh, to Detective Ritters and Wade, you said you actually yelled at him to get him off that tank. Is that correct? The lid of the tank. I say yell. I mean, it would be more like called to him, but yeah. Uh, okay, okay. And um, so you yelled to him or called to him and told him to get off the lid. Yes. Um, and then I think you also said that, in addition, you made him promise you that he would not. Well, you say in the interview, I made him promise. What did you make him promise? That he would stay off of the lid. I didn't want him to break it. I always tried to keep him from messing up anything that was Mr. Meadows. Okay. So, so you, I didn't you, want him to crack the lid in half. So you made him promise to stay off of the, off yes. the lid. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. That's all the questions that I have. Any redirect, Ms. Bush? Oh, ma'am, please step down. Please watch your step as you step down and have a seat beside your attorney. Call your next witness. Ashley was the last person to testify at her trial. In his closing arguments, Fleener spoke about the condition of the home and the dangers it posed to young children with cigarettes, cleaning supplies, and medicine in places that they could access. He said Ashley knew Noah liked to play outside. She knew there was a septic tank there, and she at least one time saw Noah stand on top of the lid. Fleener said Ashley willingly left Noah alone in these conditions, surrounded by hazards two times, once when she took Paul to work and later when she fell asleep. When he died because of one of those hazards, it was her fault. Bolger, Ashley's defense attorney, 
argued that Ashley was a tired mother who fell asleep. She made a terrible mistake, and it's one she'll have to live with for the rest of her life. But there's no way Ashley could have predicted Noah would fall into the septic tank. Bolger argued prosecutors can't begin charging parents every time they fail to anticipate every potential danger around their house. Closing arguments finished at 3 p.m. on Friday, February 12th. Judge Bradley Finch gathered his notes and went to his chambers to deliberate. About two hours later, lawyers were called back into the courtroom. Finch had made his decision. Septic is produced by Robbie Korth and me, Jacob Demet. Music comes to us courtesy of Mike Gangloff and Matt Payton. All courtroom audio was obtained from the Pulaski County Circuit Court Clerk's Office after a request to Judge Bradley Finch. This podcast is about presenting an accurate account of the death of Noah Thomas and his parents' legal saga. All audio has been edited for brevity and clarity. For pictures, original documents, and other extras, visit septicpodcast.com. And feel free to send us any feedback at septic at roanoke.com. This is a copyrighted podcast of the Roanoke Times. All rights reserved. Thank you so much for listening. And again, this was the fifth of what will ultimately be seven episodes dropping every week right here in this podcast feed. So subscribe wherever you get your shows to guarantee you'll get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed, feel free to explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. You can find links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. For Lee Enterprises, this is Chris Lay. Thanks again for listening.